I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Julia Hamer, Master of Medical Science Students and Lecturer at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Ellen Warner, a Medical Oncologist at the Odette Cancer Centre at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto. In the Open Access Review article they co-authored, Dr. Warner and Ms. Hamer identified which lifestyle changes can be recommended to patients as an adjunct to standard breast cancer treatments. They will specifically address body weight, exercise, diet, smoking, alcohol intake, and vitamin supplementation. I reached them in Toronto. Hello, Ellen and Julia. Thank you for joining me. It's our pleasure. Tell me, why did you want to write this article? This is Ellen Warner speaking. I've always encouraged my breast cancer patients to make healthy lifestyle changes. And I was doing this long before there was any evidence that changes could reduce the risk of breast cancer recurrence. My goals were simply to improve patients' overall quality of life and their general health and to give them something they could control because they had absolutely no control over their diagnosis or treatment. As more studies were published about the effects of lifestyle factors on breast cancer outcomes, I was aware of the overall results, but I never really took the time to look at the studies in detail. Meanwhile, I had met Julia when she was a summer student at our cancer center, and last year she emailed me asking me whether I could supervise her on an independent study project that would count as a course towards her undergraduate degree. I wanted to pick a topic that we could both be excited about, and I knew she was studying nutritional sciences and that she was also a serious athlete. And suddenly this topic came to mind as the perfect fit for our mutual interests. But reviewing and summarizing the literature turned out to be a lot more work than either of us had imagined. So I thought, why not at least get a publication out of it? It's a really great article and we're excited to have it. It's so useful to summarize all this information together and well done for doing it. So studying the influence of lifestyle factors can be really challenging. And can you tell us about some of these challenges? I think there are at least four big challenges. The first is that lifestyle behaviors are often interrelated. So if we're doing a retrospective study and we look at people who eat a healthy diet, they're often more likely to exercise and maintain a healthy weight too. Or similarly, if we're doing an intervention study, say trying to get women to lose weight, they're going to change their diet, they're going to exercise more, and if the outcome changes, well, which was it? Was it the weight loss, the diet, the exercise, or all three? So it can be very hard to study these factors separately. And on the other hand, um, women who smoke, for example, are more likely to drink too much. And again, you've got these confounding of various factors. The second challenge is that we know now that lifestyle factors before a diagnosis of breast cancer can actually affect the prognosis of that cancer. So if we want to study the impact of behavior change after diagnosis, we have to make sure we're doing the appropriate comparisons. So for example, if we want to know whether quitting smoking can improve the outcome of breast cancer, we have to compare women who continue to smoke after their diagnosis, not to women who never smoked, but to women who quit smoking at the time of their diagnosis. And the third challenge is in order to try to avoid some of those first two ones, is the ideal study um, would be to do a randomized control trial where we assemble two virtually identical groups of newly diagnosed breast cancer patients 
and we randomly assign one group to receive a specific lifestyle intervention. Well, that might work for something like um, a nutritional supplement, for example, but you can't randomly assign one group of women to drink alcohol excessively. That won't work. So all we can do is compare the outcomes of women who say they are drinking excessively to those who say they're drinking moderately or not at all. And that brings us to the fourth challenge, which is that unlike a drug study in which we have ways to determine whether a patient is actually taking the assigned drug or not, when we study lifestyle behaviors, it's very hard to test whether the patient is actually behaving the way she says she's behaving. That's not because patients are inherently liars. It's simply because they're often too embarrassed to admit that they haven't had the self-discipline to follow their doctor or nurse's recommendations. Dr. Warner, your review seems to target women only, and I was wondering if these findings within it also apply to men with breast cancer. Because fewer than 1% of all breast cancers occur in men, we just never have enough male breast cancer patients to study these factors in men specifically. However, almost everything we know about breast cancer risk factors or treatment outcomes for postmenopausal women seem to hold true for men with breast cancer. So my guess is that all these lifestyle um, outcomes um, would also apply to men if they apply to postmenopausal women. Okay, so let's look at the lifestyle factors individually, starting with weight. Julia, what does the evidence say in that regard? There's a lot of good evidence that we found on uh, weight loss and weight management. It's a bit tricky because being overweight is a risk factor for breast cancer. So especially among postmenopausal women, there's a large majority of women that are above their ideal body weight uh, once they're diagnosed with breast cancer. But there is some evidence showing that um, being obese at the time of diagnosis is associated with worse breast cancer prognosis. Um, we looked at one large meta-analysis, which evaluated uh, 79 different studies on weight at diagnosis. And when they compare uh, patients who are obese, so over 30 for a BMI, um, and as well as patients that are overweight, so having a BMI between 25 to 30, uh, compared to patients of normal weight, uh, they had a significantly higher increased risk of breast cancer mortality. And we've also seen that gaining weight, so not just uh, starting at a higher mass, but if patients were to gain weight, whether they started at a normal or an overweight um, diagnosis, they're also more likely to have a higher risk of breast cancer mortality. So this is weight gain typically over 10%, so definitely a larger amount of weight gain. It's just unclear still whether patients that are obese or overweight, if it would be beneficial for them to lose weight to improve their prognosis. There hasn't been any uh, longitudinal studies looking at that, but there are some currently in the works. Um, Yeah, so all we know for right now is that it's best for patients to not gain weight and to try and maintain that healthy, normal uh, body mass index. Exercise seems to have the biggest effect on reducing breast cancer, so obviously it's really important to encourage patients to exercise. Can you tell us about this, Julia? Yeah, so a lot of research has concluded that physical activity uh, seems to have the strongest impact on uh, breast cancer prognosis and can significantly uh, reduce the risk of a recurrence. One of the meta-analyses that we looked at was published in 2015, and they evaluated women participating in all types of recreational uh, recreational physical activity after a breast cancer diagnosis. Um, so within these 22 studies, it showed that there was about a 
percent reduction in the risk of recurrence for those that were exercising compared to those that were not. Um, and for most studies, this was independent of the patient's pre-diagnosis physical activity level. So whether they were uh, very active before or they've never worked out in their lives after a breast cancer diagnosis, there's still uh, an inferred benefit of exercising. Um, and this and this benefit was greater for postmenopausal women as well as women um, that were more overweight, so with a BMI greater than 25. Um, and it was also strongest for women that were adhering to the recommended daily physical activity levels. So the recommended levels in Canada as well as in across North America uh, is 30 minutes uh, of moderate intensity physical activity at least five days a week. Some cancer associations also recommend doing two to three physical um, strength exercises, so whether it's squats or push-ups, something to really engage your major muscle groups of your body, which are typically in your lower body. Um, there's also a few studies that show that even though they recommend uh, 30 minutes of physical activity a day, doing more is not uh, necessarily harmful. It actually might be beneficial. Um, and this isn't more rigorous exercise, it's just a greater duration. So maybe walking an hour a day versus 30 minutes a day. So there was a significant inverse uh, dose response for the hours of physical activity and also breast cancer mortality. So exercise uh, seems to be really good medicine for the body. Yeah, bigger than uh, 40% reduction in breast cancer occurrence is a huge effect. What evidence did you find for the influence of diet on breast cancer recurrence? When you're looking at diet, it's very difficult. I mean, exercise is a bit easier to evaluate, um, but diet, no one has the same diet. It's really hard to narrow down the individual nutrients in isolation. But there's some evidence to suggest that a diet high in saturated fats, especially high-fat dairy, um, was associated with an increased risk of breast cancer mortality. So we've seen this in about five or six studies, but there's still a lot more work that needs to be done there to understand that the WINNIS study, so the Women's Intervention Nutrition Study, uh, I think it was done early 2000s, uh, they found that women who reduced their fat intake by 15%, and this is over a couple of years, that they had um, a reduced incidence of recurrence as well as breast cancer mortality. But because they were reducing their fat intake, they also lost an average of six pounds. So it's difficult to really know whether the reduced risk of recurrence was due to the weight loss or uh, due to the dietary change. Other things that we looked at, we looked at overall um, diet, so whether people were adhering to a Mediterranean-style diet or uh, more of a Western-style diet, so Westernized-style meaning high in processed foods, so usually fast foods or processed grains or meats. Um, for women that were all having very prudent diets, so uh, rich in fruits and vegetables. And there was no uh, significant difference in the incidence of recurrence or breast cancer mortality. There were a couple of significant studies for Mediterranean-style diets, but um, those are now currently being looked at um, in further detail. So there's two ongoing longitudinal studies seeing if this could be beneficial. And then lastly, what we looked at was Soy. So soy is an interesting one. Um, me and Alan talk about this a lot. Because women are told, or I guess they assume, that soy is harmful to breast cancer because we know that there's estrogen associated with soy and it, can, it contains these estrogens. Um, so just to give you a little breakdown, so soybeans, uh, those contain both soy isoflavones as well as soy proteins. 
And the, in the isoflavonoids, there's, those are the phytoestrogens. So that's what's very similar shape to just estrogen in the body. And then the soy proteins are what are extracted um, or isolated to form like soy isolated proteins. So people take just a pure protein from soy. And then in this extraction process, there's varying amounts of the soy isoflavonoids. So a lot of studies that look at soy, there's, if they just say soy, it can be a little bit confusing about which part they're talking about or whether they extracted the isoflavonoids as well. Um, so looking at animal studies, so the reason why I guess there is all this controversy around not having soy after breast cancer diagnosis, that hypothetically, uh, soy protein, so the, the isolated soy protein can increase insulin-like, uh, growth factor one. So theoretically could promote, uh, breast cancer recurrence. And they've seen in a couple of animal studies that it did do that. And then in one clinical study, they found that a soy protein isolate, uh, when they took a supplementation of this, that it stimulated the epithelial blood, uh, breast tissues on postmenopausal women. So the soy protein seemed difficult. But again, that's isolating it from soy isoflavonoids. If you look at natural soy products such as uh, edamame or tofu or tempeh or miso soup. Uh, these are soy products that are high in the isoflavonoids as well as the soy protein. Um, and the isoflavonoids are ones that have we've seen in both clinical studies and in animal studies uh, that they have anti-carcinogenic effects. They've also been associated with apoptosis and anti-angiogenesis and reduced sex hormone levels. So a lot of great benefits there. Now looking at the clinical data, so looking at some of the studies, we've seen um, that women who have a higher consumption of soy so after a breast cancer diagnosis compared to women that had a lower consumption of soy, that the higher uh, intakers actually had an inferred benefit. So they had a 26% reduction in recurrence as well as a 16% reduction in breast cancer mortality. And this is a meta-analysis, I think, six studies, and we've seen this in a couple of meta-analyses. So this has been repeated a few times. Um, one study actually used soy isoflavonoids, so they gave a supplementation of just pure isoflavonoids, so 200 milligrams, uh, over two to six weeks for patients that were just recently diagnosed with breast cancer before their surgery. And there was a trend towards inhibition of cancer growth compared to the control group, which was not taking this supplement. Um, it wasn't significant, but it was still uh, a trend towards uh, this inhibition. There's a lot of evidence, and some of it contradicts, I can tell. Diet's a very controversial area where people seem to have so many contradicting opinions. Do you think that diet does not have as much of an influence as we think? I think that diet is probably very important, but the problem, as you and Julia have talked about, is it's by far the hardest thing to study. So, for example, when it comes to breast cancer risk, we're almost 100% convinced that diet can affect breast cancer risk. And we know that from migration studies, that women who move from a country with a very low incidence of breast cancer to a country with a high incidence of breast cancer will very quickly take on that high risk of breast cancer. So their genes aren't changing, their reproductive patterns aren't changing. The only thing that changes that quickly is diet. And the problem is even after so many years of study, no one has been able to figure out what the bad components of the diet are. And I think part of the problem with these studies is, so for example, when we look at soy showing perhaps a benefit in terms of breast cancer outcome, is it because women are eating soy or is it because they're eating less of something harmful, such as meat or high-fat dairy products? 
or people look at, say, fruits and vegetables and think of it as one entity um, as maybe being beneficial, but fruits have very different nutrient components than vegetables. And even within those categories, is it the green leafy vegetables? Is it the yellow vegetables? Um, what about raw versus cooked? What about types of cooking? And when you start thinking about, you know, these infinite number of permutations of diet, like it's no wonder that the studies very rarely can come to a definitive conclusion. So we just have to keep studying this in a more rigorous way. So Dr. Warner, considering these women have received a difficult diagnosis and are perhaps undergoing chemo or radiation therapy in the aftermath, is it challenging to counsel these women about diet and exercise at this stage? It's very challenging, Kristen. First of all, when it comes to diet, many of these women start off with a lot of misinformation. They think that having a breast cancer diagnosis means they're going to lose weight and that they'll lose even more weight when they get chemotherapy because they've watched what happens to patients with other types of cancers. The reality for breast cancer is exactly the opposite. They gain weight. Also, in certain ethnic groups, mine included, the solution to any illness is food, especially high-calorie, not terribly nutritious comfort food. So we have to educate not only the patients, but also their well-meaning friends and relatives. Um, many women whose weight has yo-yoed in the past um, think that they can indulge during treatment and then lose the weight later. And they don't realize how much harder it will be for them to lose the weight than it used to be after all the treatment-related hormonal changes that we create in their bodies. And for women who are stress eaters, a breast cancer diagnosis and its treatment can be a weight disaster. So it's really important to refer these women early on for psychological support. With exercise, the main challenge is that surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation all tend to cause fatigue, and women assume that the best medicine for their tired bodies is rest. It's very hard to convince them because it's so counterintuitive that the more they exercise, the more energy they're going to have. They just have to take that leap of faith and just do it. So let's talk about smoking and alcohol consumption. What does the evidence say for those two substances? The bottom line is there's no clear evidence that women who quit smoking or cut back on drinking after a breast cancer diagnosis have a better prognosis than those who don't, which is, I guess, a bit unfortunate. Um, but as I also explained before, these factors can be quite hard to study. But I think it's important to explain to the women that even if they don't quit smoking in order to improve their breast cancer prognosis, it's extremely important that they quit. Um, women with breast cancer are far more likely to die of cardiovascular disease, just like women in the general population, than they are of breast cancer. And we know that quitting smoking will definitely reduce their risk of cardiovascular disease. And for women who are going to take tamoxifen, it's extremely important that they quit smoking because smoking greatly increases their risk of blood clots, which can actually be fatal. And when it comes to alcohol, alcohol is a risk factor for second breast cancers. And once a woman has had one breast cancer, she's at higher risk for another breast cancer. And of course, for a woman's overall general health, um, liver, um, all sorts of different things, cutting down on drinking to a moderate level is extremely important. What about vitamin supplements? Have they been studied? Is it worth supplementing with vitamins or even a multivitamin? 
Well, there's no evidence to suggest that women should start supplementing with any vitamins or multivitamin yet. Um, however, we have seen some good evidence for uh, vitamin C and vitamin D. Um, there is still a need for randomized controlled trials, but with uh, vitamin C, it's a bit controversial since patients are often told to avoid taking any sort of antioxidant supplement, especially when they're going through chemotherapy or radiation. Um, that's part of the treatment, or at least, yeah, some of the treatment is mediated by free radical formation. Um, however, we saw in one of the uh, recent meta-analysis that was published in 2015, there was 10 studies that were evaluated, and they found that through both dietary and through supplementation that you could reduce your breast cancer um, recurrence and mortality. So they saw a 15% reduction in breast cancer mortality for those that were supplementing anywhere from 400 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams a day, and a 22% reduction uh, for those that were having a dietary intake of vitamin C around 100 milligrams a day. So those results definitely look promising, but we'll need some uh, future research to confirm any findings. And then as for vitamin D, um, there's been a bit of evidence to suggest that vitamin D supplementation may be beneficial. Uh, patients with a lower uh, serum vitamin D level have had a higher risk of breast cancer mortality, and those with a higher level of serum uh, vitamin D have uh, reduced their risk of mortality by about 40%, and that was seen in a meta-analysis of uh, six studies, and there was no heterogeneity in that study. So it may be uh, prudent for... Uh, patients who have been diagnosed with breast cancer to maintain a normal range, which is between uh, 75 to 200 nanomoles per liter. I'm curious, you didn't include evidence on the effect of peer support groups, counselling or other psychological interventions. Why is that? That's an excellent question, Kirsten. I was trying to limit the review to healthy behaviours that every woman could adopt, Many women don't have access to a psychologist or to support groups because of language barriers or travel limitations. Also, psychological factors are extremely difficult to study because there are so many variables, such as the quality of the therapist and the woman's own psychological insight. But to the best of my knowledge, there is no consistent evidence to date that any social intervention alters breast cancer outcome. From everything you've talked about today, what do you think is the most important take-home message for physicians who are listening to you? I think the most important takeaway message is that although a breast cancer diagnosis is a huge challenge for any woman, it's also an opportunity for that woman to take stock of her lifestyle choices to date. Any positive changes that she makes may improve her breast cancer prognosis and will most definitely empower her and improve her overall physical and psychological health. That's great. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Our pleasure. I've been speaking with Julia Hamer, Master of Medical Science student and lecturer at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Ellen Warner, Medical Oncologist at the Odette Cancer Centre at Sunnybrook, and Professor of Medicine at the University of Toronto. To read the open access review article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.